Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The outcome of the Brexit crisis has brought the very existence of the United Kingdom into question. Historians may look back at the current period as the beginning of the end for the British nation. The idea of wrong turnings and missed opportunities has a long history in British public debate. This song by punk group The Adverts, The Great British Mistake, was released in 1978. It now sounds like it could have been written in the past five years. Our guest today is David Edgerton. He's a professor at King's College London, where his work concentrates on the histories of 20th century Britain and of global science and technology. His most recent work is The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, one of the most ambitious reinterpretations of modern Britain for many years. In The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, you're careful to specify at the outset that it's not the rise and fall of the British economy or the British state that you're discussing, but rather the nation in particular. What is the significance of the book's title? Well, yes. Well, British history has a problem with uh, nationalism, and indeed the nation. They're not supposed to exist or exist in very unusual forms. So a central claim of my book is that something I call the British nation, corresponding to the territory of the UK, uh, emerged as a national formation with a national economy, with national politics, self-consciousness of itself as a nation called Britain emerged after 1945, but had a rather short life. It was broken up from the 1980s. So I'm talking about a particular phase in history. Uh, Before the nation uh, came both the empire and a set of places um, were located in a global free trading space. What came after the nation? Well, a fresh commitment to a globalist, in particular European, liberal economic perspective. So I'm suggesting a discontinuity in British history. But it's not, a, as I think you've suggested, it's not a, a necessarily a story of the economy. It's not a kind of moral story of the rise and fall of something good. It's the rise and fall of something significant. Uh, I'm bound to say, actually, that the the national period, the 1940s to the 1970s, actually saw the fastest rise in GDP ever in British history. So there is kind of some correlation with the process of nationalisation and the process of economic growth. But I have to uh, admit to another uh, reason for uh, the title and the orientation of the book. My aim in writing a kind of national history was recognising that that is a a very conventional, uh, widely read genre. It's a conventional frame, but one I've used really to tell an unconventional story um, about the British nation, but also about British capitalism, the state, warfare and political economy. So it's kind of a a, a particular framing that allows me to, to get away with telling stories to audiences that might not otherwise be particularly receptive to them. You put forward a critique in the book of the dominant framings of 20th century British history. What are those framings as you understand them? Yes, I do. Uh, in fact, on, on the left, I think there's a strong sense that I or we have a theoretically informed approach and all the rest of the historical accounts out there are kind of mere empirics with a bit of dodgy ideology interleaved in them. But those accounts are there, and I think it's really important to to understand them. What are they? The most important is probably what I call social democratic welfareism. 20th century British history is the rise and fall of the welfare state. An extraordinary focus on welfare, an extraordinary uh, emphasis on liberals and the left in history, as if they're the only creative forces in the UK. A second framing, also actually from the 1960s, 
is what I call a declinist framing, which conflates relative and absolute decline in very unhelpful ways and generally seeks to explain whatever it's trying to explain, it's never quite clear, in ways which are usually wrong. And this has led to, to many people, a convincing but actually very weird account of the nature of the British elite, British business, the British state, British education, British expertise. Uh, most recently, I guess, we've had a, a claim for the centrality of empire in 20th century British history coming right up to the to the present. And I think this involves, very often at least, a misrepresentation of what empire was, um, a failure to distinguish uh, imperialism from nationalism, and an extraordinary implicit continuity thesis that the empire, as it was in 1914, uh, still remains a, a potent ideological force um, uh, today. Now, there, there are many combinations of these framings. A very powerful one is to be found in the in the Dan uh, Anderson thesis. Indeed, my book can and I think probably should be read as a critique of these theses in, in their variants and, 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 and in those of others, or at least as an alternative, a left alternative to Nan Anderson type, uh, uh, type history. But I, I must admit, I found it very interesting that um, it's very rarely seen as such. And certainly the New Left Review has, has chosen not to see it that way. But I think it speaks to this more general problem that we find it difficult to recognise framings in, in British history. And I, and I hope one contribution of the book will be to ensure that, that we become much more aware of them and kind of raise our conversational game around British history. What impact did the possession of the world's largest empire have on British politics and the British economy during the early 20th century? And were the white settler colonies of Canada and Australasia more important in that regard than the African and Asian territories? Yes, it's a very important question. Well, the imperialists certainly made uh, the empire central, and in particular the white dominions to politics and economics. And actually, in many ways, today's anti-imperialists have, have followed them kind of rather, rather naively in, in this. I mean, empire was tremendously important to the politics of the, of, the, of, of the right into the 1940s. And the Conservative Party wasn't just unionist, but it was also imperialist. And the empire became the key polity for them. And the central political economic policy that they had was to create a, an empire economic bloc. So national protection was always also a policy of imperial preference and at the extreme, a policy of empire free trade. But it's important to note that they conceived of the United Kingdom as part of the empire, not the owner of the empire. So it's a genuine imperialist vision. And for them, the the white dominions in, in in particular were central. They provided an image of the empire as a brotherhood of free white nations, uh, and a very important part of the overall story. But it was also important because the white dominions really were the important bits economically, and this is where the investment went, and this is where a lot of the food came from for the United Kingdom and India. Is a, is a different matter. That's a, a place, of course, with massive population. It's, a, it's an important market for exports, but it's in a, in a, in a different league from the, from the white dominions. And both are in a quite different position from what were strictly called the colonies. But it's very important to remember that before the 1940s, that's to say in, in the great age of empire, trade with foreign countries was greater than with British countries, to use the, the language of the time. I mean, liberals pointed this out again and again, and they argued the great glory of the British economy was not the empire, but rather free trade. And that meant trading with everybody, and in practice, trading a very great deal with Europe. I mean, this is where British bacon, British eggs, British iron ore, British timber came from. And much, much else besides. The UK was a, before the 40s, 
a profoundly kind of European economy, deeply integrated into trade and production within the European continent. How important was the role of London as a world financial centre at a time when Britain was also one of the great manufacturing powers? Was there a divergence between the interests of financial and industrial capital at that stage in Britain's economic history? Well, if we're talking about the years before 1914, the City of London is extraordinarily important in the world economy. It's the key conduit for overseas investment and UK investors are the most important investors in the outside world. In the United States, in Latin America, in the White Dominions, is not particularly an imperial investment um, centre. The city is also crucially important in the financing of world trade. And the UK is the largest trader in the world, the largest importer in the world, the dominant market for nearly all the key commodities in world trade. So the city and trade are really very, very important. But the idea that um, this city or this trade is in opposition somehow to industry or industrial capital is, I think, not correct. The UK was the largest investor overseas, uh, the largest trader, but also the most industrial country in the world. I mean, much more industrialized than Germany or the United States at this time. And it was more industrialized precisely because it was more globalized. It didn't need to grow its own food. So the, what the city was was doing was investing overseas in UK-owned enterprises whose business was often, directly or indirectly, to supply food to the UK, which in turn allowed the UK to be industrial and indeed to supply the railways, the factories, the ships, which made all this trade possible in the in, in the first place. So in fact, the relations between overseas investment and industrialization are synergistic, uh, at least in this period. On the banks of Glasgow's river lie the most famous shipyards in the world. In 1938, a Pathé newsreel triumphantly announced the return of shipbuilding on the Clyde after the long depression of the interwar years. The silence of depression is past and Clyde men are teeming back into the yards where 10,000 hammers roar their song of prosperity. Here, week by week, there is taking shape the 552, sister ship of the Queen Mary. She will be faster and more comfortable than any superliner that has ever been built. You argue that standard accounts of the British welfare state as the creation of William Beveridge and the post-war Labour government are profoundly mistaken. What does that familiar story get wrong, in your view? Well, two things, I think. Uh, and the first is timing. I mean, the standard story goes like this, that the pre-1914 Liberal government introduced elements of the welfare state, that the Liberal political economist William Beveridge came along in World War II and, and proposed a radically new welfare state, and that the Labour government of 1945 uh, introduced it. Well, the Liberal government did introduce some welfare measures before 1914 based on the insurance principle, but essentially covering only health. But what's missing from the story is that in the 1920s, the UK got a welfare state for the working class, a very comprehensive uh, welfare state for the working class, and one based on the social insurance principle. So we had unemployment benefits, as well as uh, sickness benefits and other health services, and also pensions, including payments for widows and orphans. It, it almost certainly had the, the UK the most comprehensive working class welfare state of any country in the world. What Labour did, what um, Beveridge proposed, was an extension of this working class welfare state from 70 to 80% of the population to nearly 100% of the population. And a rationalization and systematization of this welfare state, bringing it all together. In 1942, William Beveridge outlined his vision for a new welfare system after the war. The Beveridge Report on Social Insurance was an unlikely bestseller, shifting 600,000 copies. Following upon the publication of his report, Sir William summarizes the points of his plan. 
The security plan in my report has three sides to it. The report proposes, first, an all-in scheme of social insurance, providing for all citizens and their families all the cash benefits needed for security in return for a single weekly contribution by one insurance stamp. The benefits are to be adequate in amount and to last as long as the need lasts. The report proposes, second, a scheme of children's allowances to be paid both when the responsible parent is earning and when he is not earning. The report proposes, third, an all-in scheme of medical treatment of all kinds for all citizens. In his first broadcast after Germany was defeated, Winston Churchill felt obliged to promise that there would be no return to the conditions of the Great Depression. Our trade and industry must be restored to a sound peacetime footing so as to ensure steady employment for all. We must strive to give everybody greater security against poverty, unemployment, sickness and old age. Above all, we must tackle the housing problem with the same drive which we put into our war effort. Churchill concluded his broadcast with an attack on his left-wing opponents. A rough road lies ahead. What a shame it would be, and what a folly, to add to our load the bitter quarrels with which the extreme socialists are eager to convulse and exploit these critical years. For the sake of the country and of your own happiness, I call upon you to march with me under the banner of freedom towards the beacon lights of national prosperity and honour which must ever be our guide. Neither the promises nor the attacks on Labour could save Churchill from a heavy defeat in the post-war election. What Labour was particularly important for, apart from supporting this, was ensuring that this whole system was a nationalised system rather than a, a semi-privatised system. And, and that's um, captured rather well in Labour's creation of the National Health Service, which involved the nationalisation of charitable and municipal hospitals. The second uh, way this misleads is, is a kind of assumption that the British welfare state of the 40s and 50s was especially generous. Uh, in fact, by comparison with Western European welfare states, it, it wasn't uh, generous. And one very important reason for this was precisely its beveridgian nature. It was based on flat rate contributions, effectively a poll tax and flat rate benefits. The continental welfare systems were often based on contributions based on income and benefits based on income. So the idea of the British welfare state is created by the Labour government after 1945 and that it's especially generous are, and therefore kind of defining of post-war Britain in comparison to other countries are both incorrect assumptions in my view. What impact did the process of decolonisation have on domestic politics and society in post-war Britain? Well, I think it partly depends on what one means by decolonisation. I mean, strictly decolonisation is the, the giving of freedom to uh, colonies. So that doesn't include India or the, the dominions. But taking the term a, a little bit more loosely, I think it's striking in a way how little impact decolonisation had or or well take the case of India and Palestine uh, in in the 1940s there were really no major convulsions at home I mean nothing compared to what was happening in France in the in the 1950s I mean another way of looking at it would be to say actually there was a silent uh, revolution brought about by de-imperialization and that was best exemplified 
by the extraordinarily rapid transition of the Tory party from being the party of empire and imperial preference to being the party of free trade and of application for accession to the Treaty of Rome in 1961. It is extraordinary that uh, just a few years after the, the, the Second World War, the Tory party turns to, uh, as the government, to, to apply for membership of what was then called the common market. That certainly doesn't suggest, as many of the history books do, that there was a, a great reluctance to go European, as it were, because of the prior and deep uh, commitment to to empire. I, I, I don't think that's uh, that's there. Though there's no necessary contradiction, actually, between imperialism and the desire to to join the common market, either in the British case or the or the French case, indeed. I suppose the the question would would uh, can usually be answered in relation to immigration. I mean, that's seen as what the the key domestic consequence of um, of decolonization. But I think that that image is misleading for for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, first of all, I mean, immigration is in 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 key respects not not the right term. There was a movement of people from uh, the Caribbean, in 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 particular in the 1950s. But they were people coming from a colonial territory and they were people that had the same nationality as most people living in the United Kingdom. They were both what was called citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies. So they weren't really immigrants. They were just people kind of moving within the space of British nationality. In 1948, the commentator on Pathé News was keen to stress the ties between new arrivals from the Caribbean and the colonial metropolis. The Empire Windrush brings to Britain 500 Jamaicans. Many are ex-servicemen who know England. They serve this country well. In Jamaica, they couldn't find work. Discouraged but full of hope, they sailed for Britain. Citizens of the British Empire coming to the mother country with good intent. Prodded by public opinion, the colonial office gives them a more cordial reception than was at first envisaged. Many are to be found jobs. Our reporter asks them what they want to do. Now, why have you come to England? To seek a job. And what sort of job do you want? Any type, so long as I get a good pay. Some will go into industry, others intend to rejoin the services. Now, you're an ex-Air Force, aren't you? Yes. Are you going back into the Air Force again? Yes. Did you know if you'll be accepted? I think so. Some plan to return to Jamaica when conditions improve. I'd like to ask you, please, are you a single man? I am a single man. My, only my mother that is depending on me. And I'm also an ex-service man. Oh, ex-service? R.A.F. R.A.F. I took a course in Scotland in case making. And uh, I'm desirous of going back there to see if I can further because I like it very much. And I'm trying to help myself and also help my mom. But interestingly, there were more immigrants in this in in the sense of um of aliens or semi-aliens uh, in the 1940s and 1950s people coming from ireland and uh, from continental europe and indeed the dominant movement of uh, population right up into the 1980s from the 40s was outward rather than inward the uk is a place of net emigration in that period and, and uh, actually quite a lot of that emigration is to Australia in particular I mean, to, to, to the Commonwealth. So the, the, the greater flow, actually, in terms of the, the, uh, the ex-empire is to it rather than from it. How did the profile of the British economy differ from the other advanced industrial states in the post-war decades? And why did many people have a sense that Britain was losing ground or falling behind its competitors during that era? Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a surprisingly important question for many, many British uh, histories, this one. And it comes as a surprise to uh, many people that in the 1950s, the United Kingdom was still the most industrialized economy on earth. This doesn't fit with the declinist images that have so affected our understanding of, uh, of this period in particular. Now, in terms of rates of growth, what we find is that 
poorer European countries and countries elsewhere are often growing faster than the UK economy. That's to say they're catching up. And indeed, the, the, the German economy uh, catches up and overtakes in terms of GDP per head in the 1960s and France in the 1970s. But the overall uh, result, actually, is that certainly all the West European economies, which had been really quite different in 1945 or 1950, come to be kind of very similar by the 1980s, 1990s, and once one includes poorer, poorer countries like, like, like Spain, the, the 2000s. There's a very great convergence. But there's one very important way which is uh, hardly appreciated in which the UK converged on a continental model, and that is with respect to food. I mean, the UK had been quite exceptional in importing half its food right into the 1950s. But there's a very important decision taken after the war to maximise the domestic production of food, to minimise imports. And that is a, a, a long-term commitment, which comes to fruition really in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, not the product of the EU, the product of a, of a national policy, a nationalist uh, policy as well. So the UK becomes, in the 70s and 80s, broadly speaking, self-sufficient in the foods that it can itself grow, much as Germany and France and Italy are self-sufficient in food. So the, what had been the great distinguishing factor, contrasting, the United Kingdom from, from continental Europe disappears as a result of a fundamental change in British political economy. So the UK, in fact, became an exporter of beef, uh, an exporter of wheat, uh, something which would have been unthinkable, I mean, not just in the Edwardian years, but in the 1950s as well. There goes Paddy Hopkirk's Mini Cooper. He won last year. In the last century, no industry symbolised national manufacturing prowess better than auto production. In the 1960s, Britain had one of the world's most iconic car models, the Mini. Despite its small size, the Mini Cooper won the gruelling Monte Carlo rally several times. That achievement was a matter of great pride for the country's newsreel commentators. There's no holding these little cars. Only 35 cars reach Monte. 140 fell by the wayside on the last 600 miles. The Mini went on to play a starring role in the cult movie The Italian Job, which took the idea of cars as a symbol of national virility to the edge of self-parody. A gangster played by Michael Caine leads a team to Italy so they can steal some gold bars from the heart of Turin. His boss is a stridently patriotic figure who wants the gold to help with the national balance of payments. If anyone in the audience was unaware that Turin was the centre of the Italian car industry, the film gave them a crash course in economic history. Kane and his team used Mini Coopers to make their getaway from the Italian police, who were driving the locally made Fiats. At one point, they drive onto the roof of the world-famous Fiat factory. Try putting your foot down, Tony. They're really getting rather close. Needless to say, the Minis are too fast for the Italian cars, although the film ends with the gang balanced on the edge of a cliff. Edge back as far as you can go to counterbalance me now. The Italian job later became a popular source of Brexit metaphors on both sides of the political divide. If you think the Italian job was heavy-handed, wait till you hear the ad for the Mini's successor, the Austin Metro, launched in 1980. It began with a shot of landing craft bringing foreign vehicles onto the beaches of Britain. ...by the Italians, the Germans, the Japanese and the French. Now we have the means to fight back. Austin Metro. The new Metro is so aerodynamic that at a steady 50 miles per hour... The, the ad culminates with the Metros lining up on the cliffs of Dover to bid defiance to the world. The new Austin Metro. A British car to beat the world. You might have noticed the cocky self-assurance of the Italian job giving way to a more defensive tone. 
The Metro was supposed to relaunch the troubled fortunes of the British car industry, but it proved to be another false dawn. In 2014, the Conservative historian Dominic Sambrook presented a documentary about the fate of car manufacturing in Germany and Britain. British Leyland has announced a loss of over £150 million for the first half of the year, more than the loss for the whole of last year. It was a depressing tale of national humiliation. By now, British Leyland were dead. The company had been split up and sold off, and in 1994, the last heir to Britain's tradition of mass car production, the last company to make the Metro, the Rover Group, passed into the hands of, well, of all people, the Germans, as part of BMW's expanding empire. But you know the really humiliating thing? That not even the Germans could turn Rover around. It carried on losing money, and after just six years, they got rid of it. To add insult to injury, while BMW may have closed down the factories, they kept the intellectual property, as one company executive explained. We took on Mini, which in essence was a small car, you know, great character, was over 40 years old and had a history in the, effectively, the growing up of many, many people, and not just in the UK, all around the world. But more importantly, we turned it into a brand. And now there are seven members of a family, but very, very clearly under the brand of Mini. But the Germans didn't stop with Mini. BMW owned Rolls-Royce, too. Even Bentley, perhaps the most prestigious of all British brands, answers to Volkswagen's steely commander-in-chief. Bentley is a good example of how it's still possible in your country to make beautiful cars and sell them for profit. The new Mini starred in a Hollywood remake of The Italian Job, with an American actor, Mark Wahlberg, taking the place of Michael Caine at the wheel of a now German-made car. The image of the 1970s as a dark decade for Britain is arguably the most enduring stereotype in British politics. It only takes a single strike for journalists to start conjuring up images of rubbish piling in the streets and other familiar images from that time. What would you say are the main problems with that stereotypical view? Well, I think uh, certain weird images of the Second World War are likely to pop up, you know, a few microseconds faster in journalists' minds than uh, uh, than the the nineteen seventies. But you're right; it does have a, a very particular place in British history. What's wrong with the view? Well, the strikes were not uniquely British. Uh, there was, of course, a general global strike wave from the late sixties into the nineteen seventies. It also gets the the the, uh, the causes of the strikes wrong. In particular, the strikes of the so-called winter of uh, of discontent. I mean, those strikes were caused by a government wishing to bear down on public sector pay in the context where it was not willing to bear down on private sector pay any longer. So it was the government, if you like, that was, that was pushing poorly paid workers uh, to take strike action to defend their standard of living, uh, was the image that essentially a conservative historiography has, has created is of, is of Bolshe workers getting uppity and taking on the government. Exactly the opposite is the, is the case. In 1972, a strike by coal miners humiliated the government of Edward Heath. The symbolic crowning moment of the strike came at a fuel storage depot called Saltley Gate. Mass pickets forced the police to shut it down, as this news report described... For the pickets and for the engineering shop stewards who'd marched in support of them, it was a victory. As the gates of the gasworks clanged shut at 10.45, a great shout of triumph went up from a crowd of about 7,000 people. Earlier, there'd been fierce struggles between the police and pickets as the strikers tried to stop lorries entering and leaving. When the shop stewards' procession arrived, it rapidly became obvious that there'd be no chance of getting more vehicles in and out today. The procession stayed orderly. Small parties of demonstrators were allowed by the police to march through the pickets and past the works entrance. The crowd was now in good humour, but determined. 
It was at this point the decision to close the gates was taken. Later, I spoke to a miners' leader, Mr Arthur Scargill, of the Yorkshire Executive Committee. We want assurances from the Chairman of the Gas Board in writing that only permit holders from the NUM to distribute fuel to hospitals, schools and needy cases will go through these gates. If that, is hap if that happens, of course, what will it mean? The people inside will be able to take fuel out of this gas plant and distribute it to the needy cases in numbers far greater than they've done in the past few weeks. In other words, the, the NUM wants to issue permits to the people to be allowed to come in here. Approved, approved drivers and lorries. The kind of approved permits that we're distributing all over the rest of the British coalfield with complete success. And if the gas board here will do the same, there'll be no further problems. Another thing that's wrong is actually the, 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 the timings. The strikes weren't particularly a feature of the uh, Labour government of 74 to 79. The very important strikes indeed, of course, under the Conservative government of the early 1970s. And indeed, um, in the period of the Thatcher government in 79 into the early 1980s, and of course, the great miners' strike of 84, 85. Indeed, curiously enough, uh, if one looks at the monthly figures for strikes in 1979, one finds there are fewer workdays lost in the period of the, the so-called winter of discontent at the beginning of 1979 than there were at the end of 1979 when the Conservative government was already in office. I mean, the reality is that the 1970s saw a global crisis, important transitions in the British economy, there are important readjustments, and it's also a, a period of political radicalism, uh, a period of, of political and cultural uh, inventiveness, a period of innovation, actually, but a period of, 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 of ferment of a sort that conservatives uh, didn't like one, one bit. And that's essentially why the 70s have, have this terrible reputation. The challenge from the left to the crisis of the late 1970s crystallised around the figure of Tony Benn. Unlike most left-wing politicians, Benn had become more radical after his time in office. In this speech from 1981, he set out a radical agenda for social and political transformation. And we cannot go back to 1979, to the policies of wage restraint, which I might remind you, and you know very well, not only undermined the Labour government, but undermined the role of the trade union movement because trade union officials were agents of government policy rather than representatives of the membership. Now, I believe, uh, I believe in the... Uh, constitution of the Labour Party, which also is about incomes, to secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of their industry and the most equitable distribution thereof as may be possible on the basis of the common ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange. We cannot go back to the IMF limits on public expenditure because the world bankers will give us their confidence to the extent that we abandon our policies. And the winter of discontent was a special sort of siege economy fashioned by the IMF and imposed upon a Labour cabinet. We cannot go back to the common market support agreed by a majority of the Labour cabinet in March 75, or to nuclear rearmament. Because if we try to go back to those policies, I tell you, this party will be in the wilderness for a generation. And what we have to decide is how we are to get that election victory and carry the policy through. The British Labour left developed a programme in the 1970s and the early 80s for going beyond the reforms of the post-war decades, which was known as the Alternative Economic Strategy. Now, that platform was defeated politically both by the Conservatives and by internal opposition within the Labour Party itself. So the question of whether they could enact it in government did not arise in practice. But... What do you think, in principle, its strengths and weaknesses were as a programme for government? Yes, I mean, I mean first of all, it's a, it's a very important programme. It's part of the development of properly social democratic policies by the Labour Party, I think for the first time in its history. I mean, it goes along, actually, with uh, new ways of thinking about, about welfare. Uh, I mean, post-beverage and non-beverage and welfare. It's important as a strategy, the, the alternative economic strategy, because, well, for two reasons. One, that it 
is about getting back to the economic policies of the 1940s and 1960s, but in such a way as they they might work, or at least work more effectively. So the great strength is in understanding that the state required more control over business, especially in a context where capitalism and the nation were coming apart. So there's a there's a focus on on the need to have more ownership of, 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 of business and more generally to control business more, to democratize business as well. There's also a recognition that British capitalism was relatively weak in, in some crucial areas or was becoming relatively uh, weak. So it had to be reorganized. It had to be modernized. And what are the what were the, the the downside to this program? Well, I think an overarching declinism, which overdid the weakness in British capitalism. I don't think it ever kind of faced up to the difficulties that there would have been in developing such a a program. I don't think that the party was prepared for those difficulties. And I don't think it faced up to the possible negative economic consequences of the kind of strategy that was being pursued. And the alternative economic strategy implied and sometimes directly meant supporting things like the the design and development of production of very inefficient British nuclear reactors, or indeed the the Concorde supersonic aeroplane. So it had a deeply nationalistic kind of technocratic streak that I think was was very unfortunate. I mean, it was in, in many ways a more nationalist than a than a socialist uh, program in fact margaret thatcher succeeded where the labor left had failed first in taking control of her own party and then in using that as a launch pad to push through a radical new program that transformed britain what impact did thatcherism have on the british economy especially its manufacturing sector and how would you assess the importance of two economic factors in her political triumph at that time? First of all, the revenues from North Sea oil that came on tap in the early 1980s. And secondly, the existence of the financial sector as an alternative to manufacturing. Yes, I mean, Thatcher did transform the British uh, economy, but it's important to note that she did not increase the underlying rate of growth of the British economy. So since 1979, the British economy grew more slowly on average than it grew between 1945 and the, and the 1970s. Uh, in that sense, she most certainly did not reverse the British decline, and nor did she reverse the British decline in, in relation to all the other majors, major economies in, 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 in the world. But uh, I mean, that was, of course, something which would have been impossible. In relation to manufacturing, it's important to note that while manufacturing employment you know, went down very radically, manufacturing output, in fact, uh, stayed high. And indeed, peak manufacturing output in British history came in two thousand and eight. In fact, it wasn't the it wasn't the nineteen seventies, let alone the eighteen uh, seventies. What made the Thatcher experiment successful, as indeed it was in in transforming uh, the nature of British economy and society. Well, North Sea oil was certainly important. It was important because together with the new self-sufficiency in food, it meant the UK no longer had to import the two things which dominated its import bill uh, in in the past. That's to say food and oil. That meant that the UK no longer needed to have a surplus in the uh, manufacturing balance. And indeed, the the manufacturing balance goes negative in 1981. So British consumers could now enjoy freely vast quantities of, of foreign manufacturers. And indeed, quite soon, you get a permanent 
negative balance of trade in the in the in the British uh, economy. A quite quite extraordinary thing. I mean, a, a, a tiny negative balance of trade was the stuff of politics in the 1950s and 1960s. In the more recent past, a permanent you know three, four, five, six percent deficit uh, percent of GDP deficit has no impact whatsoever. What makes this deficit sustainable? Well, the emergence of uh, a new kind of city of London. It's not the city of London of the Edwardian years. It's something quite different. It's a kind of enclave, uh, which is about bringing money into the UK as as much as uh, as taking it out. And indeed, it is precisely those net flows of capital into the UK which allow it to sustain this negative balance of uh, of trade. And the city is is also, of course, of fundamental importance in changing London. Uh, I mean, London starts growing again um, from from the early 1980s. It becomes an extraordinarily cosmopolitan city. It's swamped, you might say, as Thatcher uh, did in the 1970s, by uh, foreigners. So the 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 city, uh, London. Indeed, Britain is is not the, the 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 Britain that Thatcher had in mind in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies. It becomes uh, something can really quite new and indeed quite distinctive. I mean, the most important thing Thatcher does, I, I think, apart from opening up the economy to Europe and and the world, is to encourage the increasing inequality. Uh, between capital and labour, between the regions, there's, a, there's, a, there's an extraordinary kind of reversal of the move towards greater equality of, of incomes, of wealth, of uh, kind of regional development that are taking place from 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 from, from 19, 1945, and uh, an elimination really of the, of the sense of an economic nation in which we were all in it together and we would all be buying British goods and eating. British food. I mean, for all her kind of cultural nationalism, uh, Margaret Thatcher was a, a radical economic internationalist. One film made at the very beginning of Thatcherism channeled the spirit of the age in a way that now seems quite uncanny. In The Long Good Friday, Bob Hoskins stars as a London gangster called Harold Shand, who wants to become a legitimate property tycoon. He has a plan to go into business with the more genteel section of the American Mafia. I've put money in all your pockets. I've treated you lot well, even when you was out of order. Assuring them that London is a safe investment. No other city in the world has got right in its centre such an opportunity for profitable progress. At one point in the film, Shand walks around the derelict docklands and talks about the potential for development. Fifteen years later... The Isle of Dogs would host Canary Wharf, one of the world's biggest financial centres. Shan's would-be mafia partners decide to pull out of his enterprise when he gets dragged into a war with the Irish Republican Army. In real life, it was IRA bombings in the early 90s that posed the biggest threat to London's role in global finance. Oh, this is like a bad night in Vietnam. But it's over. I've pulled the plug on him. We do not deal with gangsters, period. This country's a worse risk than Cuba was. Shand lets loose a tirade against American culture and talks about his orientation towards Europe. That's one of the few ways in which the film proved to be out of sync with the development of Thatcherism. I'm glad I found out in time just what a partnership with a pair of wankers like you would have been. A sleeping partner's one thing, but you're in a fucking coma. No wonder you've got an energy crisis your side of the water. That's British. We used to have a bit more vitality, imagination, touching a Dunkirk spirit, know what I mean? The days when Yanks could come over here and buy up Nelson's column and an Arley Street surgeon and a couple of windmill girls are definitely over. Now look, shut up, you long streak of paralysed piss. What I'm looking for is someone who can contribute to what England has given to the world. Culture, sophistication, genius. A little bit more than an hot dog, know what I mean? We're in the common market now. And my new deal is with Europe. 
I'm going into partnership with a German organization. Yeah, the Krauts. They've got ambition, know-how, and they don't lose their bottle. Look at you. The mafia. <laughs> I've shit them. The Long Good Friday came out in 1980. Two years later, Bob Hoskins took the film critic Barry Norman on a tour of the real-life city. But there's £1,200 million pounds worth of redevelopment right the way down the river. A whole lot. Hoskins guided Norman along the river to Wapping in the East End. It's sterilised by greed, that's what the Thames is. And right across there, of course, you've got Wapping, haven't you? Now that's another story. All along there, they've got a load of warehouses right on the river. They've got workshops and it's like industry in there. And they're all getting turfed out because they're going to turn those warehouses into luxury flats, right? Then they're going to run a road right the way through the middle of it, right, separating sort of the water people, the rich whopping who live by the river, and the poor whopping who live on the other side of the road. It's called regenerating the river, you know, so bringing it back to life, so making it a playground for the wealthy. Well, yeah, I, well, I suppose the wealthy can afford the, the nice sites on, on the river. I mean, you know, they can pay for it. But what about the things like the Coin Street development and, and the people who are going to live there? Who's going to pay for that? Look, Barry, Coin Street and all those things are a typical example of what is going on at the moment. We spend billions every year on making missiles that are so powerful that they're redundant before they're made because our only hope is to sort of not use them. Yeah. Why can't we spend some of that money, just some of that money on making this a nice place to live for everybody? And if there was a nice place to live, maybe there wouldn't be this morbid industry in, in sort of interest in blowing it up all the time. Wapping later became a concrete fortress for Rupert Murdoch's News International after he locked out the printers' union. By then, the transformation of London into a playground for the wealthy, as Hoskins called it, was well underway. Your book concludes with an assessment of Tony Blair and the New Labour project. What do you think were the principal legacies of Blair and Gordon Brown from their time in office? Well, I think really it's institutionalising Thatcherism, or perhaps better... Uh, majorism, uh, maintaining these uh, great new divisions between the rich and the poor, deepening the Thatcher reorganization of the welfare state. I mean, the welfare state doesn't go, it actually grows, but it changes. Um, We see an extension of means testing, increasing amounts of uh, uh, benefits being given to, to people in work, to supplement appallingly low wages that the market uh, generates, a continuation of privatization and marketization, not least in the health service. So it's it's uh, the politics of continuity. There is also um, a distinct kind of revivalism that comes in. I mean, putting aside, at least in the case of Blair, much less so in the case of Brown, the declinism of the past. Cool Britannia was a a slogan in the late 1990s. The cultural moment of Cool Britannia reached its high point shortly after Blair's victory, when he invited a group of celebrities for a reception in 10 Downing Street. The Oasis singer Noel Gallagher later said that he asked Blair what he planned to do about a group of dockers in Liverpool who had been locked out by their employer. According to Gallagher, the Prime Minister just stared at him blankly. One of Blair's erstwhile Britpop allies, Jarvis Cocker of Pulp, later recorded a song deriding the marriage between New Labour and Cool Britannia. He called it Cocaine Socialism. But there's also a sense that the, the country is back that it is Global Britain, a coining by Gordon Brown, actually. The Blair government saw the planning of two aircraft carriers, an interesting uh, development. And, of course, it saw involvement in a number of wars kind of culminating in uh, Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And, and I think those were very, very important. I think the loss of trust in government that, that arose from 
the obvious mendacity, systematic mendacity of the Blair administration around Iraq had had and continues to have profound consequences. In April 2003, the BBC political editor Andrew Marr presented the fall of Baghdad as an unmitigated triumph for Tony Blair. Uh, he confronted uh, many critics. I don't think anybody after this is going to be able to say of Tony Blair that he's somebody who is driven by the drift of public opinion or focus groups or opinion polls. He took all of those on. He said that they would be able to take Baghdad without a bloodbath and that in the end the Iraqis would be celebrating. And on both of those points, he has been proved conclusively right. And it would be entirely ungracious, uh, even for his critics, not to acknowledge that tonight he stands as a larger man and a stronger prime minister as a result. By 2016, Blair was a far more embattled figure as Sir John Chilcott published a damning report on the invasion of Iraq. The decision to go to war in Iraq and to remove Saddam Hussein from power was the hardest, most momentous, most agonising decision I took in my 10 years as British Prime Minister. John Chilcott himself tried very hard to avoid calling the former Prime Minister a liar when he spoke to the BBC. Um, Tony Blair is always and ever an advocate. He makes the most persuasive case he can, not departing from the truth, but persuasion is everything, advocacy for my position, my Blair position. And indeed your report say for it says, for example, on the intelligence, yes. he gave it a certainty that wasn't justified. I mean, that's another way of saying it was exaggerated, isn't it? He found, I don't know whether consciously or not, a verbal formula in the dossier in his foreword to it, which said, and use it again later, I believe the assessed intelligence shows beyond doubt pinning it on my belief, not on the fact of what the assessed intelligence said. And they generated a new deep cynicism in politics. They were focused on process, not outcome. They were focused on on the newspapers rather than what was happening on the ground. And I think they continued the disabling of the capacity of the state to act in a rational and and unreasonable manner. There was a kind of... um, kind of manic energy and ambition that kind of looking back and comparing with today's Labour Party kind of looks uh, uh, exciting. But it really didn't lead to any to anything particularly kind of creative. Um, in fact, by depoliticizing so much, it allowed, I think, the growth of a radically politicized conservatism and it's striking to see that that, that the Conservatives have um, increased their share of the vote with every election since 1997. Uh, and the idea that it's, it's Boris Johnson that just suddenly transformed the fortunes of the Conservative Party is quite wrong. So, um, you know, one legacy of, uh, of Blairism, actually, is, uh, I mean, it's not just kind of Brexit, but also, and it's closely connected, a new, revived, dangerous Conservative Party. So if, um, if Thatcherism kind of begat Blairism, I think Blairism begat Johnsonianism by a very different process. In a 2019 article for The Guardian, just as the Brexit crisis was reaching its crescendo, you argued that Brexit was made possible by the transformation of the British economy in the late 20th century. There's a quote here from your article that I want to read out. Today, there is no such thing as British national capitalism. Brexit is the political project of the hard right within the Conservative Party and not its capitalist backers. In fact, these forces were able to take over the party in part because it was no longer stabilised by a powerful organic connection to capital, either nationally or locally. Now that raises a lot of fascinating questions about the British economy and about the relationship between political and economic power. There could certainly be a full-scale research project embedded there or or even several full-scale research projects. But briefly, if you could, what would you say that Brexit taught us about those questions? Well, it taught us a lot. I mean, one point I, I was 
getting at with that quotation that there was a time that this is not clear in most of the, the histories when nearly every important business in the country had its representatives in the in the House of Commons. I, mean, I don't mean trade unionists, I mean the owners. And the Conservative Party was the party of British industry. I mean, literally. Uh, my favourite example is the owner of Meccano, the founder and owner of Meccano, a Liverpool toy company, very important one, uh, was the MP for Everton uh, in Liverpool for for many years. But one could repeat that example kind of again and again, and uh, um, it applies indeed to many prime ministers, uh, uh, especially Baldwin, in fact. But in the in the recent past, things have been very different. I mean, the UK has been a place where global capitalism does its business. There's relatively little straightforwardly British capitalism. I mean, the FTSE 100 uh, tells you very little about the health of the British uh, economy or or British uh, firms, for example. So that's very important. Um, so this, what does this mean in, in practice? It means that that there aren't the sort of connections between business and the Conservative Party that there could have been when they were all the same people. I mean, there are perhaps connections between particular kinds of business and the Conservative Party, particular hedge funds, for example, Russian oligarchs uh, be another example. And between them, they're pushing the Conservative Party to be a party that's pushing for an even greater degree of, um, of tax havenness of the British economy, uh, making it even more of a rentier economy than it already uh, is, to liberalise the economy further. And that essentially has been the project of the hard, ultra-Thatcherite right of the Conservative Party uh, in the case of Brexit. That's their policy. And it's it's really a, a, a policy of of liberalisation, of globalisation. I mean, it's uh, it's one that has kind of ironic uh, consequences for, for free trade and all the rest of it. But at the heart of it is a belief in a, a very radical version of the free market. So, so Brexit is telling us that the Thatcherite programme, combined with a kind of revivalist view of the British economy, has been extraordinarily powerful in recent British politics. But there's another side to this, which I think is is really very important uh, indeed and not sufficiently appreciated. And that is that Brexit was never thought through by these people. They never had a plan for Brexit. They never really knew what Brexit was going to actually be or what it would take to make it happen. So there are, there's no preparing of the people. There is no preparing of business. There is no preparing of the infrastructure. Uh, I mean, in fact, there are systematic self-delusions uh, and, and lies about the impact of Brexit, as we see in what will, I fear, be a tragic unfolding of the, of the Brexit uh, fiasco in Northern Ireland. I mean, I think an absolutely scandalous set of developments. And again, it is the unthinking, brutal unionists uh, of, of the Conservative Party, together with the DUP, that are, that, are, that, are, that, are, that, are, that are pushing this. So we have, if you like, an extraordinary uh, kind of politics in which perhaps a particular fraction of, 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 of capital allied with a very hard right elements of the of the of the conservative party is pursuing a, a, a policy that they they don't really understand and can't really come to terms with um, and that is something new in british history um, something radically new i mean we've had great programs of political economic change from uh, mobilization of the second world war to going into the eu but these were planned thought through there were, there were any great surprises um, this one hasn't been, and it hasn't even really been improvised. It's just been, been um, a very, very peculiar uh, mess. The other aspect that has to be mentioned is that although that is the politics of the, of the Brexiters themselves, those aren't the politics of Brexit in the sense of the Brexit voters. I mean, the Brexit vote is been an old vote, just like the 
conservative vote. And I think one has to credit the conservatives with realising that their vote was an old vote and doing everything they they, they could to, to sustain that that vote. You know, for example, by keeping NHS spending up, by keeping pensions spending spending up, systematically targeting welfare at the elderly and taking it away from the young. But those old people, well, well many of them, I think, were, were quite happy with the politics of tax havens and wanted greater liberalisation. Many of them were, in effect, uh, kind of Lexeter protest votes, people that wanted national industry back, perhaps national agriculture back as well. Uh, I mean, they were they were expressing uh, entirely uh, a legitimate disapproval of where the economy had been going for the last 40 years. But instead of kind of voting out the powers that be uh, in London, they were uh, uh, convinced that um, they had to vote out the powers that be in Brussels. I think they made, from their, their point of view, an appalling uh, mistake. And I think that's going to add to what I think will be a very incendiary time in British politics. Many thanks to David Edgerton for his account of modern Britain. I'd strongly recommend his book, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, for anyone who wants to go further. 